podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle, and this is the week of October 3rd, 2020. We had some Jeopardy this week, some pretty exciting Jeopardy. But before we get to that, Emily, how are you doing? Um, my imaginary farm is great, thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm good. Oh my gosh, everyone's going to get so tired of me talking about my pretend farm. I'm still very deep in Stardew Valley, and it's still fun. My kids are into it now. They each have their own individual farm, and the two of them have a co-op farm. And I'm pretty far ahead of them, and I'm starting to find some of the um, more intense character stuff with all the different characters' backstories, which I think is all going to be fine. But it's an interesting world. I actually was talking on Facebook about Stardew Valley with uh, Reese. Reese Oh, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. He was up against you and Christine. Christine, yes. Yeah. He's a big Stardew fan as well. (laughs) Fun. Yeah. (laughs) So that's me. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. Things are going well at school. We have a concert next week. And the, for the first time, I think, in my entire career, I have I feel like we're prepared for our first concert. So that's good. Nice. Because n- normally we get to first concert time and I'm like, all right, we just need to get through this and then we'll know. We'll just clean the slate and work on the next one and the next yeah. one will be good. Uh, but yeah, so far, so far, so good. So. Looking forward to it. Yeah, nice. Break a leg. Thanks. Do you say break a leg to the... To musicians, it's not so much a thing. Yeah. But I'm not a superstitious person anyway. Yeah. So. You know I did quite a lot of music as a student when I was mm-hmm. a kid. I heard break a leg a fair bit, but like to the teacher conductor, I oh, guess yeah. so. Yeah. But it's like yeah. a little bit of a different role. Right. By this point, like, really, my job is just make sure everybody gets on stage at the right time. Yeah. And then hope they remember what we worked on. They'll be great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They'll be they'll be awesome. They'll be so good. Uh, so, like I said, we had some Jeopardy this week. And on Monday, we had the contestants Jenny Millett, an artist and thrifter originally from Canton, Ohio. J. Scott Gabrishik, a paralegal from North Mankato, Minnesota, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose one-day cash winnings totaled $29,579. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, what's in the box? It's, it's Gwyneth Paltrow's head. I, I know. Like every time, I, <laughs> I know that's the joke, but even so, every time, I'm like, come on, guys. Uh, 20th century pop music, plain talk. Medical specialties, chapter, and verse in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Plane talk was about airplanes. Yeah. I bet you knew the adjective for the piccolo or flute, meaning it's held horizontally with the breath blown into the side in the verse category. I did. Yeah. It's transverse. I figured it out also. It is the transverse flute. Uh, before the transverse flute gained popularity, the recorder was in fact just simply referred to as the flute. Huh. 
which is why if you look at Renaissance music particularly, there's plenty of plenty of examples of recorder ensembles mm. as flautists. Yeah. The music school that I went to when I was a kid was very recorder heavy. It's really good for teaching young children how to read notes, mm-hmm. how to play an instrument, how to move your fingers. It's just really bad for my sanity. Yeah. Everyone started on the recorder, and then most people moved on to some other instrument, but we had a handful of people who just stuck with the recorder and became, like, very accomplished recorder players. Yeah. And would do, you know, Renaissance music. Sure. Yeah. I mean, someone will listen to it. Yep. Daily Double number one is in the plain talk category at the $800 level, and... Chris found it. It was the 15th pick. Uh, He made it a true daily double with 3,000 and got the clue. Great flying weather with no major clouds or haze is Kavu. Ceiling and this unlimited. Uh, And he got it correct. It was visibility. Ken asked if he was going to do the all-in thing like James Holtzauer. (laughs) He said he wasn't as good as James Holtzauer, but like... We're recording before I've had a chance to see the Friday episode, so I don't know what happened, but... He's been pretty strong. Yeah. Spoilers, I guess. Uh-huh. For yeah. anyone who didn't actually watch the episodes, which I don't know that that would be anybody. Yeah. So he doubles up, and at the end of the Jeopardy round, he is in a solid lead with 9,600 to Scott's 4,000 and Jenny's 800. And they get the double Jeopardy categories when Polk was president, geography, the Titans... A common category, film noir, and alliteration. There was some neg bait. Jenny went for the neg bait, so did I. In the alliteration category at the $1,200 level, get them hot. Vernon Rudolph mm. founded this donut chain in 1937. Depending on where you're from and your, you know, kind of <laughs> frame of reference, yeah. perhaps the first alliterative donut chain you might think of is Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm. Now known as Duncan. That was Jenny's guess. Uh, Chris got the rebound with Krispy Kreme. Yes. Uh, Krispy Kreme turns on a neon sign when they have hot donuts. Yes. What to know there. That's the the clue that might help you to know that it's Krispy Kreme and not Duncan. Which one of the two alliterative donut chains? Yeah. Although I guess now they probably wouldn't refer to Dunkin' as Dunkin' Donuts, now that it's changed its name. I don't know. Hard to say. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before. There was uh, some mythology question or something asking about the mother or the the goddess that was the wife of of Saturn, I think, Mm -hmm. or Kronos. And one of the contestants guessed Gaia, but that was Rhea. Mm. So at the $2,000 level of the Titans, this time we got Gaia, the The Titans were the children of Uranus and this Earth goddess, and that is Gaia. So I believe, if I remember my Greek mythology, the lineage was Uranus and Gaia created the Titans, and then the Titans were the parents of the Olympian gods. So Kronos and Rhea were were children of Uranus and Gaia. Hmm. Anyway, I just remembered that someone guessed Gaia. When it was Rhea. Yeah. Vice yeah, versa. I remember that as well. All right. Daily Double number two is in the geography category 
at the $1,600 level, and Chris finds it as well. He's at, uh, this is pick number four in the round. And he wagers pretty big. He wagers 4800 and gets the clue of the three longest rivers in Africa, the two that begin with the same two letters. And he gets it correct with what are the Nile and the Niger. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is in that the Titans category that we were just talking about. It's at the $800 level, and Chris finds it at the 20th pick. He is running away with the game at this point. He wagers 400 of his 28,800 and gets the clue led by Zeus. This group named for their lofty home overthrew the Titans, and he gets it correct. That is the Olympians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Chris is at 30,800. Scott is at 4,400, and Jenny is at 8,800. So he's got it easily locked. And they get the final Jeopardy categories, 20th century poem endings. And the clue, these five words that end a poem are also a proverb. One citation across the centuries includes a reminder not to make the wall too high. They kind of all got it correct. Scott wasn't able to finish writing it down. He wrote, what is good fences make good neighbor? Mm-hmm. Which they did not accept. Uh, and he wagered 4400 So he went to zero. Mm-hmm. Jenny got it correct with what is good fences make good neighbors. And she wagered 8800 which risked her not getting second place. Like, if she had just, like, bet zero, then everything would have been fine. Yeah. But she and Scott would have tied. tied. But I think that it goes to her. They've got guidelines. They don't do a tiebreaker for second place. Right. They have, they have like, a, a way to break the tie that I think is based on score before yeah. Final Jeopardy or something. Yep. Uh, and Chris also got it correct and wagered 3000 so he wins with 33800 So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Jacqueline Liao, an engineer from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Sean Holloway, a software engineer originally from Kansas City, Kansas, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose two-day cash winnings at this point total 63379 And the Jeopardy categories are the 50 states, a C in literature, C in quotation marks, ships and boats toying with you, their first U.S. number one hit, and It's a Mystery. It's a Mystery was vocabulary-ish. I guess the Sphinx one gets a little bit into mythology, but a lot yeah. of it seemed like they described a word related to mysterious things. Yeah. And you had to figure out what the word was. Mm-hmm. Ken gently corrected a mispronunciation at the $1,000 level of the 50 states. The clue was step back in time on this Michigan island where cars are banned and horses, buggies, and bikes are the means of transportation. Chris rang in and said, what is Mackinac Island? Which you would think that's how it's pronounced because it does end with a C, but they say it Mackinac. Yeah. For a long time, I thought they were different places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was like, well, clearly that's pronounced Mackinac. Why would that ever be pronounced Mackinac? Yeah. Maybe they're near each other. You can imagine, like, often there are places near each other with similar names because the language of the indigenous people who lived there, like, one was the place with the this and the other was the place with the that. Right. I've imagined incorrect etymologies like that. Like, you, mm-hmm. can, you can sort of 
justify that trade of thought. Right. You can make something that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I always think it's a fun bit of trivia. Well known, but just an enjoyable fact that Mr. Potato Head started as a bunch of things that you could stick into an actual potato. An actual potato. Because what else were you going to do with potatoes? Yeah. Certainly not eat them. Yeah, that is fun. Daily Double number one is in that same toying with you category, but down at the $600 level. Chris finds this one at pick number 16. Uh, he is out to a good lead already, and he wagers 4600 Gets a clue in the 60s, seeing this toy car for the first time, its company co-founder said, those are some dot dot dot. And Chris got it correct with what are Hot Wheels. Mm-hmm. Hot Wheels. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is at 12,600. Sean is at 3,400. Jacqueline's at 2,800. And the Double Jeopardy categories are Central American History. See him at the museum. Wait, just a mineral. All that glitters. Films by characters. And the eyes have it. I-Z-E. In quotation marks. I felt like there was a lot of overlap across categories Mm. here. For example, two different questions in Wait, Just a Mineral connected with glitter. Mm Mm-hmm. But then we had the all that glitters category right next to it. So we had all that glitters maybe iron this at the $800 level. Fool's gold, iron pyrite. And then at the $1,600 level, a clue about as an art supply, pixie dust is often flakes of this shiny four-letter type of mineral. That was mica. And nobody guessed that. And like either of those could have fit in with the all that glitters category. Yeah. It's interesting that those two were right up next to each other. Yeah. Oh, and then in the All the Glitters category, there was a picture of a work by Gustav Klimt that you were supposed to name. And I was like, wait, aren't you supposed to say which museum it's in? But that's two categories that over be... at CM at the Museum. There was just a lot of overlap here, I thought. Yeah. In a way that made me get confused about what constraints I was having to meet with different clues. I would have found that disorienting if I were up yeah. there, I think. They seem to handle it okay, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, they did. It does. It, you're, yeah, you're, you got a good point with that. Daily Double 2 is in that see at the museum category. It's the fourth pick at the $1,600 level. And Chris finds this one as well. And he is still, he's at, at an even bigger lead and wagers 4,900 of his 14,200. And his clue is Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon and Van Gogh's The Starry Night, this Manhattan museum. And he guesses the right one or knows the right one, it is the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. Those particular works are kind of, you could imagine them being either Met or MoMA. Mm -hmm. And there are some other New York museums to know. But yeah, he knew those were at the MoMA. Yep. And Daily Double number three is in Wait Just a Mineral. At the $1,200 level, it's pick number nine. Chris also finds this one. He, he, it's just extremely dominant. Wagers 3,000 gets a clue May we calcium sulfate hemihydrate is a mouthful, so a fast setting after drying gypsum product goes by these three words. And he figures it out with what is plaster of Paris. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Chris has a lock with 35,300. Sean is at 7,400, so he has locked second place. Jacqueline's at 800. And our final Jeopardy category is Asian country names. 
And the clue is, like the TUV in Tuvalu, this landlocked country has three consecutive letters in its English name in alphabetic sequence. This was a triple stumper. Jacqueline tried what is Mongolia, which has M, N, and O, but not in that order consecutively. She wagered 800, so she drops to zero. Sean was starting to write what is, looks like he was going for Kyrgyzstan. Uh, He only got the first few letters down. That one doesn't work either. So Sean wagered nothing, so he stays where he is. And Chris tried what is Tajikistan. That has a I, a J, and a K, but not in that order, so that doesn't fit. He's wagered 15,221, so that drops him down. The correct response here is Afghanistan. F-G-H. Yeah. Afghanistan. I would not have gotten there. Did you get there? I did not. I started thinking, well, it's got to include a vowel. I don't know why I thought it had to include a vowel. Um, I just just started picking countries. And I was like, it's probably in Africa because there are a lot of countries there. It's Asian country names. Did it say Asian? Yeah, the category is Asian. The category is Asian. Oh, the category is Asian country names. That makes sense why I didn't get to it then. Yeah. Because I was like, I was trying to think of some and I was like, probably Africa. But with such a big lock, Chris drops down only to 20,079 and gets his third win. Yeah, still in great shape. Yeah. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants, Francis Gomez, a quality assurance technologist from Tottenham, Ontario, Canada, Tori Martin, a communications fundraising director from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose three-day total is now $83,458. And the Jeopardy on categories are helpful historic figures, damn nation, where they give you the damn and you have to give the nation... Bartending 101, first episodes, it's a verb and a noun, and you're on a roll. Mm-hmm. Kent does a pretty good Ted Lasso. Yeah, he was pretty good. I agree. And listeners, if you haven't watched Ted Lasso yet, I know it's on Apple TV, so if you don't have Apple TV, then I guess he can't. But if you do have Apple TV, please watch Ted Lasso. Yeah. Do yourself a favor. Yeah, I haven't watched all of Ted Lasso, but... I've, I've really enjoyed what I've watched. It's very good. Yeah. We started watching Better Call Saul, like, just this week. Hmm. We haven't even watched the whole first episode yet, actually. But I did remember that opening scene in the Cinnabon. So I got that $800 clue pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Francis got $1,000 level clue, and Chris got all the all other All the others. Thousand. Yeah. We don't recognize people for running a dollar level the same way we recognize them for running a category, and it makes sense that we don't, but... Right. But it is still pretty impressive. Yeah, it's impressive. I notice it, but probably because I'm on (laughs) J-Archive. Right, right. We look over the games multiple times. Daily Double number one is in the Damn Nation category at the $800 level, and Chris finds it at the third pick... He makes it a true daily double with 1800 and gets the clue Des, formerly Pallabi, but things changed. And he gets it correct with Iran. Hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris has 12,200, Tori's at 1,000, Francis is at 3,400, and we have the double Jeopardy categories. We recognize the senator, 
Science and Nature, Short Stories and Novellas, Words from German, Company Towns, and You're in a Role. So name the actor whose role is provided in the clue. I did a deep dive on George Pullman. You did? Way back. And uh, he was at the $2,000 level of Company Towns. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a good deep dive, I thought. It was a good deep dive. Yeah. I mean, it was certainly on my mind when that clue came up. I think that one would have been pretty accessible, even had I not taken the time to read up on him. But But even so, it's still helpful. Yeah. Human skin gives off bioluminescence, apparently. Apparently it does. Yeah. Good to know. Also, I read somewhere and like... Don't take this as scientific fact until you like fact check me and make sure that this is from a reputable source. I read that humans have stripes. Hmm. Not on the visible light spectrum. But Interesting. Yeah. But they are visible to like cats and some other animals. Curious. Yeah. Now I want to see my stripes. I need yeah. to know. Mm-hmm. I need to know what color my stripe or not color, because obviously it's not visible, but I need to know about my stripes. Yeah. Um, the Daily Mail is not like a scientific journal, but yeah. Um, I, I, I see I see an article there. All right. That's not what the clue was about, but I don't know. Recently, I learned that I have stripes, and now also I found out that I glow in the dark, so I'm not really sure what's going on anymore. You're basically a superhero. Yeah. Nice. So, Daily Double number two is in the We Recognize the Senator category at the $2,000 level. And Tori finds this one. First one Chris hasn't found in quite a while. Mm-hmm. She is at just about, I think, like 2,600. Wager is 2,500. Gets the clue officially censured by the Senate. He died in office a few years later, and they showed a picture. And she says, who is Senator McCarthy? And Ken asks for more specificity. So she says, Joe McCarthy. Mm-hmm. I don't know off the top of my head if there has been another Senator McCarthy, but Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Daily Double number three is at the 18th pick at the $1,600 level of words from German. And Chris finds this one. He wagers just 1,000 of his 25,800 and gets the clue, this word for a recurring musical theme in an opera or symphony comes partly from German for lead. And he gets it correct he pronounces it late motif. I think it's light motif. Light it motif. is light motif. Yeah, but we learn things by reading. Yeah. It's fine if you don't know how to pronounce something. Um, right. So yeah, light motif is correct. Yes. Although I will, just to get pedantic, say that it threw me off a little bit, the way the clue was worded, because it says this word for a recurring musical theme. And in music, the word theme has a more specific meaning. A motif is specifically a thematic component. So themes are comprised of motifs. So a light motif is not a theme. It cannot be a theme because it is a motif. Mm. The way I describe it to my students is like motifs are puzzle pieces. And when you put them together, you can create a theme. Oh, okay. Anyway, it was enough to know. Yeah. And, of course, they can't just give you the word, you know, in the clue, so they have to give something similar enough to make it obvious. I get it. Anyway, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Chris is yet again 
in a lock position. He's at 28,200. Tori is at 7,900 and Francis is at 5,800. We get the Final Jeopardy category travel and the clue. The 1948 edition of this publication said, there will be a day in the near future when this guide will no longer have to be published. Francis missed it. He wrote, what is the Michelin guide? And wagered $57.99, so he drops to $1. Tori got it correct with what is the green book? Um, and wagered $78.99, so everything but a dollar, and moves up to $15.799. And Chris wrote, what is, is it Zagat or Zagat? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Zagat, I think. Zagat. Zagat! Yeah, Zagat. Zagat. Google says. Okay. Zagat. Yeah. So again, thank you, Google. <laughs> but we know that's incorrect. He wagered 1200 But he still wins because he had a lock position and he didn't risk it. Yep. I thought that was a really good pull from Tori. Yeah. My mind absolutely did not even consider that. It went to international travel stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. But good for her. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I worked this one out as well. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Jeff Parker, a professor of theater from Arvada, Colorado. Joe Austin, a retired IT project manager from Manlius, New York, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose four-day cash winnings total $111,058. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, word puzzles, books and authors, musical alter egos, U.S. diplomacy, all hands, and pretty crafty. I think it was this game... There were a number of things that reminded me of clues from my one game, Mm. uh, your fifth game of Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Um, So hear me out. $200 level of books and authors. He invented the word mansum to describe a character Mm -hmm. in Jabberwocky, Lewis Carroll. We also had like a bit of Jabberwocky vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Later on, we have a clue about quarks, Mm -hmm. which we had... Indeed. And we've got Cesar Chavez. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that there's another one that connects to our game. But three is still but a decent three, amount. Yeah. Which, like, I mean, my guess is they tried not to bring these things in. You know, They try not to bring any specific thing in too often, you mm-hmm. know? And so, like, I wonder if there's some kind of sense of how long is long enough to go between. Yeah. Jabberwocky vocabulary clues. Mm-hmm. And it appears to be about four years. Yeah, about four <laughs> years is the is the appropriate interval for how often you can ask. Well, no, we've had Cesar Chavez in between, right? But like, <laughs> we're bringing the cycle around. Right. Maybe Cesar Chavez is a two-year cycle and Jabberwocky is a four-year cycle. Yeah. Yeah, this is just the perfect storm of recurring things from our yep. game. Yeah. I don't know. This isn't quite the same as saying Chumbawamba on national television, but the musical alter egos at the $800 level. The clue is allow me to amaze thee. Gregory Jacobs went by Shock G and this alliterative name, his digital underground dance, was a hit in 1990. This is a triple stumper. Nobody attempted it. And I wonder if even if they did know, or at least they thought they knew, if they didn't want to ring in and on Jeopardy say, what is Humpty Hump? <laughs> yes. You've got to be really sure. Yeah. Or you, you, really, <laughs> really need that $800. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's got to be a pretty strong feeling for you to, or I would say your typical Jeopardy contestant to ring in and say, what is Humpty Hump, Ken? Yeah. Yeah. This also was a tricky game. Sometimes I'm not sure if it's a tricky game or we happen to have a set of kind of buzzer shy contestants, but we know Chris is not hesitant to ring in. Mm -hmm. We had a fair number of triple stumpers and a fair number of triple stumpers where no one made an attempt in this game. Yeah. So we get Daily Double number one in the books and authors category at the $1,000 level. Chris finds it at pick number nine. He wagers 3,400, which I think is everything he has. And he gets a clue in The Family Chow, author Ian Samantha Chang reimagined this Dostoevsky classic using a Chinese-American family. And he seems to puzzle it out, but he gets there with what is the Brothers Karamazov. I was guessing the same, but would have struggled with that one. My mind started listing Tolstoy titles. Yeah. (laughs) And then he said Brothers Karamazov, and I was like, wait... That's not a Tolst... Oh, (laughs) it's because they weren't asking for that. Oops. Good thing I wasn't on stage. Uh, So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is only at 10,800. Joe is at uh, 1,800 and Jeff is at 1,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are UK Geography, Women in the Arts, Physics, Union People, Historical TV Roles, and insignificant idioms. Mm-hmm. They had a tough time with those idioms. They did, yeah. I thought the $800 was... Oh, yeah, they only got one of them. Um, the $800, I thought that the clue... The video component was not helpful? Didn't work well. No, <laughs> Yeah, the, the written part of the clue was this idiom, illustrated here... Originally meant a less prestigious vaudeville circuit. Now it's anything unimportant. And then the video component was like a clock in the center of the palm of someone's hand. Yeah. And so I was like, is that a pocket watch? Time on your hands? Yeah. Like minute hand? I don't. Yeah. yeah I, I was trying to figure out the pun there. Mm-hmm. It's just small time. Small time. Small time is what they were going for. Yeah. And so the hand was for scale, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I did not think that worked. Yeah. We got daily double number one as the very first clue mm-hmm. of the round. So maybe I should, sure. maybe we should talk about that now. Uh, it was in historical TV roles and Jeff found it. He had 1600 and wagered 1500 of it. He could have gone up to 2000, but I think maybe didn't want to drop two or below zero. And got the clue Tom Berenger as Theodore Roosevelt in the 1997 miniseries named for this regiment. And he got it correct with the Rough Riders. Yes. And it was fun to see him catch up in this round. Yes. It was a game. Unlike the previous Mm -hmm. games this week where Chris has gotten out to a lead and just cruised to the end. You know, the other contestants have played well. And obviously, like, there wasn't really anybody who seemed to make a lot of mistakes. They just went up against someone who was faster on the buzzer. Right. Which happens. But yeah, it was fun to watch. Jeff Jeff did pretty well. Mm-hmm. His theater background helped him in that historical TV roles category. And then also uh, there was a clue about the um, 
Actors Equity Association, a $2,000 clue right. that helped him as well. Indeed. Oh, and one about Andrew Lloyd Webber's wife. Yeah, so this was a good board. A good board for, for him, yes. For him, yeah. That's true. That's true. There was a triple stumper in the women in the arts category, the $800 level. In 2015, this African-American prima ballerina made her Broadway debut in On the Town. African-American prima ballerina is Misty, Misty Copeland. Copeland. Misty Copeland. Yep. Who is amazing and She's awesome. So uh, but yeah. Always, always going to be her. You could see from their faces that they were like, I know. Yeah, I know who this is. I just can't remember yeah. the name. And sharing a last name, not spelled exactly the same, but pronounced the same with Aaron Copeland, who came up the previous day. True. I think might have thrown me for a loop. Yeah. Um, sometimes that kind of thing will make me be like, no, Emily, it's not Copeland. You're just thinking of that because we just had a question about Aaron Copeland, right? But mm -hmm. it is, it's Misty Copeland. And Daily Double number three is in the union people category at the $1,600 level. Chris also finds this one at, at pick number 11, and he wagers 5200 Hmm. Big wager. He gets a clue. In 2021, teachers union head Randy Weingarten seconded the nomination when Liz Schuler became this federation's first female president. And, I mean, the teachers union pointed him in a certain direction, so he guessed what is the NEA, uh, which is the National Educators Association, mm -hmm. which I'm a proud card-carrying member of. But that is the AFL-CIO, so looking for federation. That was really the clue. That's the American Federation of Labor and the... Uh, what does CIO stand? I always Congress forget this. Congress of Industrial of Industri Organizations? Is that Something right? Something like... Yeah. I don't know Congress how. of Industrial... Yeah. Congress of Industrial Organization. Yeah. Wow. My brain contains things that I have no idea how. It does indeed. Yeah. I got to AFL because of Federation, and I was like, does it need to be AFL-CIO? So I like pictured myself on stage saying, what is AFL? And kind of drawing out the L and seeing if they, you know, if Ken would say yes mm -hmm. or no, and then saying CIO after that. Um, but he missed it, and he drops down well within striking distance of Jeff. Seeing him miss that and then Jeff really go for it was, was exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round. Chris is still in the lead with 16,800, but Jeff is giving him a run for his money. He's up to 12,700. Uh, Joe's at 200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Nobel Peace Prize winners. And the clue, he served as Bishop of Lesotho from 1976 to 1978. And Joe got it correct with who is Tutu, uh, Desmond Tutu. She wagered 200. Jeff tried who Caro? Yeah, I, I don't, don't know who that is. I don't is. know who he was trying to think of there, but it doesn't matter. He didn't wager anything, so he stays at zero. Smart. Smart wager. Mm -hmm. Chris has it correct, though, with who is Tutu and a wager of 8,601, which brings him up to $25,401 and gives him his fifth win. Indeed. Yeah. And I just realized I, I was talking about, you know, that what is the row equivalent of running a category? And this is not quite the same thing. But Jeff was the only person in this game who got a $2,000 question correct. And mm. he actually got three of them. 
Nice. Yeah. yeah. So that's an achievement. Yeah. And on Friday, we have the contestants Dan Fayer, a musician and crossword editor from San Francisco, California, Kate Matthews, a research project manager from Durham, North Carolina, and Chris Panulo, a customer service operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose five-day cash winnings total $136,459. We have the Jeopardy round categories Plaza, Suite, Anagrammed Bible People, Black Business, 2022 Sports News, Lions, Tigers, and Bears, and Oh My, with O in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Anagrammed Bible People was very fun. Yep. For you. <laughs> <laughs> Although, the $800 level Baptist parent Bail these was a triple stumper, and the correct response was Elizabeth it was Elizabeth spelled with an S. An S. Though, yeah. which I just checked. I usually use the NRSV translation. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And mm-hmm. that one has it with a Z. Let's see. Did you check the King James? I haven't. Ch- uh, the King James is, yes, that's probably it's the answer. Standard go-to. King James version, Luke 1. Let's see. Yes, I should have remembered that. Yes, she is Elizabeth with an S in the King James Version. That's why. Uh-huh. There you we go. Deduced. Yep, that's why. I would. I also would not have gotten that. <laughs> if if there'd been a Z in there, I probably would have thought of Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, with no S or with, his, with an S, I didn't get it. Yeah, Baptist parent is Zachariah and Elizabeth. And mm-hmm. I really like that story, which often gets skipped over because it's one of the Not yeah it's Jesus. yeah you know i mean it, it's appropriate for the advent season but we've got a mm-hmm. lot of readings that are appropriate for the advent season and not a whole lot of advent season so mm-hmm. it's a, that's a favorite kind of lesser known one of mine yep. yeah we had a nice uh i'd say nice moment in the 2022 sports news at the 400 hundred dollar level because they refused to do this novak djokovic missed the australian open and Kyrie irving missed nets home games and Dan said, uh, what is get vaccinated? And Ken said, yes, get vaccinated is correct. <laughs> it is. It is correct. Get Thank vaccinated you, is correct. Yes, indeed. Yep. Still need my booster. Yeah. They just became available. And yep. I've been busy. Yeah, everyone needs their bivalent booster. Last I checked because I've had, wait, have you had COVID recently? I have not had COVID to my knowledge at all. Okay. I have never tested positive. Wow. Okay. Congratulations. Last Thank man you. standing. Even though it has it has been around <laughs> me for an awful lot. I test all the time. Yeah. I've seen different things about whether you should get your bivalent booster immediately if you've had COVID recently or whether you should wait. And if so, how long you should wait. So I'm not sure what the current recommendations mm. Are. Last I checked, I am supposed to hold off on the bivalent booster for about another month or so, mm. but it's possible the recommendations have changed. Yeah. Listeners, if you haven't checked recently or haven't been paying attention to vaccine news, the bivalent booster is different from the other boosters and you should get it unless there's a reason you know, not to. Yeah. Yeah. Like a medical reason. Like, if it is still the case that they're saying, don't get it if you have had COVID mm-hmm. in the last 90 days and that applies to you. Or mm-hmm. there were some medical reasons, but 
get vaccinated is correct. Yep. Yeah. Daily double number one is in Lions, Tigers, and Bears at the $800 level, and Chris finds it at the 10th pick. And he makes it a true daily double with 2400 uh, Dan is just a tad ahead of him at this point. And Chris gets the clue, the Leone d'Oro, or the Golden Lion, is the top prize awarded at this Italian city's film festival, the world's oldest. And he didn't look like he knew it, but he got it correct anyway with what is Venice. It looked like he was kind of trying to like think through some possibilities and make an educated guess. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris has taken the lead. He's at 8,400. Kate's at 2,000. Dan's at 7,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are the ancient world, two-letter spelling bee, you must spell your response, recent literary biography, ecology, European eats, and Gibson girls and guys. Mm. About people with the last name Gibson. Which apparently there are at least five. Yeah. I was very familiar with the cookie at the $400 level of European Eats. The clue was thank you to this country for its tasty waffle, created by a baker in Gouda. And they showed a picture of what that particular cookie looks like. And Dan guessed what is Belgium, which is very understandable when you notice that it has waffle right in the name, right? Right. I admit that there's yeah. a mislead there. It's, uh, it's the Netherlands. Gouda is in the Netherlands. Or if you just know that as a Dutch cookie, you can get it that right. way, too. Also, the double O is pretty Dutch. You're right. There's a like a linguistic root there. Mm-hmm. Have I mentioned how I very much dislike moussaka? You haven't. I haven't, yes. I don't think I've ever had good moussaka, because if I have, then it means I just don't like it. Yeah. But I've talked to people about it, and there are people who are like, oh, no, it's great. Like, I don't know. I've never had what that I like. I mean, I had it in Greece yeah. when I went there, and I didn't like it. Like, I don't know. Maybe I don't like moussaka. Like, I think it's fine, I just, of the things that I would order in a place that serves Greek cuisine. Mm -hmm. It's not what I would get. It doesn't even make the top five, you know? So it just doesn't come up a lot for me. Yeah. And for me, I think it's the eggplant. Mm. I just like, eggplant is like, nope, you've made it worse. Yeah. The inclusion of eggplant is like always going to bring it down for me. That's fair. It's a challenging texture. Yeah. And I don't think it has flavor. Mm. It's like bland mush. Yeah. Which I realize we can disagree on. Yeah. I get get that. So there we go. You know, hot takes from Kyle. I don't care for eggplant. That's a controversial one. (laughs) There's going to be coming out of the woodwork for me now. Yeah. I don't know. I don't love eggplant. I use it sometimes in my cooking, but it's mostly just to like kind of add bulk. The texture is a little difficult, but like you're right. It doesn't have a whole lot of flavor. It's fairly neutral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. makes it easy to throw into like a veggie saute or something to like just make there sure. be more of it yeah and if it takes on the flavor of something else okay and especially if you saute it to get rid of some of the moisture yeah then it's like okay you know it's like fine yeah but, uh anyway daily double number two is in the recent literary biography category at the 800 dollar level it's pick number 19 it's pretty late dan finds it mm-hmm Uh, He's been behind Chris, but keeping pace, you know, at a distance. And he wagers 5,000, which is a good move. 
gets the clue, 2022 brings the 150th birthday of poet Lawrence Dunbar and a bio calling him this creature that sings in his famous line. Dan does not know it. He guesses what is Nightingale. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it but it is the caged bird. Yeah, which I learned from that. It apparently, apparently, like is not originally Maya Angelou. That yeah, it was it was a reference, which I it was a reference. I had a that. vague feeling that that was the case, but I was not at all confident. Yeah, so he drops down, and that kind of seals it for Chris. Yeah, not exactly, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does. Yeah, it basically does. Yeah. And then Chris finds Daily Double number three at the 21st pick. It's the $2,000 level of ecology. He's at 23200 at this point with Dan in second place at 9200 And Chris wagers just 200 And Ken seems a little surprised at the small wager. Like, he's like, oh, small wager this time. But like, Ken, you understand the strategy here, right? right? And Chris has also talked about how he does not usually take risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's in a lock position. The small wager to preserve the lock if he gets it wrong. You know, it's a savvy move. So he gets the clue. SaveTheElephants.org says elephants are important as this type of species named for a crucial bit of architecture. And Chris guesses foundation. That is not correct. Keystone is what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard yeah, of that. Good thing he only bet 200. Yep. Good thing he only... Oh, yeah. 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 So um, it drops him down just the tiniest bit. Yep. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Chris has a lock at 25,400. Uh, Dan is at 10,400 and Kate is at 3,600. And we get the final jeopardy category, countries of the world. And the clue, it has the most water area of any country, nearly 350,000 square miles, about 9% of its total area. Kate guesses what are the Philippines. Not a bad guess. I wonder how much of the ocean between the islands counts as water space for it. Mm, Yeah. Dan got it correct with what is Canada. Uh, He wagered 2,600. And Chris also got it correct with what is Canada and wagered his 221, which I think we learned was his girlfriend's birthday. Mm. I think yeah. I heard maybe on the on the Inside Jeopardy podcast. Oh so yeah, yeah. He includes that in likes to include that in his in his wagering. And I believe this is game six for Chris Panulo. Is it five out of six that were lock games? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Let's Something see. Like one. one. Yep. Five out of six. Yeah. It's yeah. Awfully impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> this is I mean, obviously, anyone can lose at any time, right? Everyone loses. Mm -hmm. But it is suggestive of a big run coming. Yeah. With all of these extremely dominant performances. Mm -hmm. So So, that's the end of the week. We will see Chris again on Monday. And this is when we talk to you about our Patreon. It is patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there to support us financially. Slide us a few bucks a month. It helps with the cost of putting on this extremely professional and well put together show. And if you want it to, you know, stay at the level of quality that we have that we have come to showcase, then uh, perhaps a little bit of a little bit of financial assistance there would be would be great. We like to put our quiz questions up. 
you know, after the recording, but before the episode airs. So Patreon supporters can take a look at those a little bit early. And uh, we do have some old content that if you haven't looked at yet, I think it's still pretty good from, you know, Goat Tournament and other things. Patreon.com slash Potent Potables, you can go there. Mm -hmm. And of course, we also like to point out that there are more important things than this extremely important and insightful podcast. And we have recently been highlighting abortionfunds.org, as well as a number of other important causes that you can find in the show notes. That's right. So, Emily. Yes. Kyle. What are your deep dive guesses? Are we talking about the Monroe Doctrine? We are not talking about the Monroe Doctrine. Okay. What about the Tasman Sea or, you know, things around that? Mm -hmm. I thought about that one, but no. Okay. The Black Hand. We are not talking about the Black Hand. Ah. Uh, I am realizing that this is two deep dives in a row that are pretty much like me on the nose, but I felt like I wanted to talk about it and I might not get another chance to ever talk about it in a deep dive. So this is all the way back to the Monday game. We did talk about this clue in the verse category, the $800 level adjective for the piccolo or flute, meaning it's held horizontally with the breath blown into the side. That is transverse. Just in case this is a blind spot for any of our listeners, I'm just going to talk about instruments. Nice. Instrument types, instrument families, that which differentiates instrument families. And just like if you don't have much experience with music and don't really know the different instruments, maybe this will help. So this is also, you know, I could talk about this for literally an entire year because that's what I do for my job. So uh, I'm going to try to keep it a bit more concise than just like going off on, you know, about every instrument. But I'm going to talk about the different instrument families, uh, how we kind of define those families, and then some examples of instruments within those families. A little bit of information there. So when we talk about musical instruments in, you know, this is, of course, about Jeopardy in the United States. We are American. I imagine most, if not all, of our audience lives in the United States. So it's going to be United States and sort of like European influence focused in terms of instruments. Because, of course, every culture around the world has musical instruments that they develop themselves that are traditional to their particular style. But even with that, all musical instruments can be classified into the particular families that I'm going to outline right now. So your traditional, what we would call like orchestral families, the ones that you would find in your standard symphony orchestra, are brass, woodwind, string, and percussion. And while we, you know, label them as like brass and woodwind and string, the way they're classified together into different families is not what they're made out of. So a brass instrument does not need to be made out of brass. And an instrument that is made out of brass is not necessarily a brass instrument. Why is it called brass? Well, because a lot of them were made out of brass. And as with most things in music, somebody decided and a bunch of people agreed to it hundreds of years ago. And at this point, we can't change it because, you know, how are we going to do that? So we just call it what it is. So the brass family is where I'm going to start. Often, they are made of brass, but not always. They can be made of other metals. They could be made of... Back in the day, a lot of brass instruments were made of bone. If you think of like an old, perhaps shofar from the Hebrew tradition, mm -hmm. uh, that's just a horn, like literally the horn of an animal, right? 
That's not made of brass. There are things made of bone. You can have a brass instrument made of wood. A number of medieval and renaissance quote-unquote brass instruments were made of wood. But that's not why they're brass instruments. Every brass instrument, the vibration comes from the player buzzing their lips. So the brass family, the, the typical standard instruments you see, trumpet is the soprano voice. Horn, French horn, is the alto voice, although I call it horn because it's not technically French, and according to the International Horn Society at their convention in the year 2000, they determined that it is in fact not French and therefore should just be known as the horn anyway. Yeah, the horn is like the alto voice that we hear, and the trombone and euphonium which is what I play, are the tenor voices and the tuba is the bass voice. All of them often are made of brass, but they create sound by the player buzzing their lips into a cup-shaped mouthpiece. So an instrument like, you know, like I mentioned, the shofar, which is a, you know, an ancient instrument far, like predates the creation of brass as a metal. It still is within the brass family because it is played by buzzing your lips into a tube. Any, you know, a cardboard tube that you give to a little kid and they buzz their lips into it and it makes a sound, you could call that a brass instrument. As with all acoustic instruments, the size determines the pitch. So uh, a longer tube will create a lower pitch. A shorter tube will create a higher pitch, which is why a tuba is so much bigger because it just has a whole bunch more tubing than a trumpet. On brass instruments... The pitch is changed by lengthening or shortening the tube, but you do that with either slide or valves, right? The trombone, you can see it getting longer, you can see it getting shorter. That's an easy example, but the trumpet, horn, tuba, they use valves, and when you press down a valve, it adds a little extra tubing. When none of the valves are pressed down, you just blow straight from the mouthpiece to the bell, and then when you press down a valve, it adds a certain length of tubing, and the combinations of valves create different lengths. The reason it can play all of the notes that we have in our like pitch system is because of the harmonic series, which is the set of frequencies that any given length of tube can resonate at. So the lowest pitch that it resonates at we call the fundamental. And so for most of our standard brass instruments now, the fundamental pitch is B-flat and... So that's the lowest possible pitch that that tube will resonate at. Uh, and then it goes in a series of an octave higher, which is like double the frequency, and then a fifth higher, and then a fourth higher, and then a third higher, and then a minor third higher, and then a flat minor third higher, and then a second. And so as you go higher and higher in the harmonic series, or what we call the overtone series, the pitches get closer and closer together. But in order to fill in the gaps in those lower partials, right, where you go from you know, your your second pitch to your third pitch, which is a fifth apart, you need a certain number of different, like, lengths of tubing to fill in those gaps, which is why we have the valves in the systems that we have. So it allows you to play in quote-unquote equal temperament, which would match all of the keys on a piano keyboard. Cool. So those are brass instruments. Anything that the player buzzes their lips into qualifies as a brass instrument. Woodwinds. Does not need to be made out of wood does not need to have any wood at all. In history, like historically, they were made of wood and had woods on them. So that's where that comes from. But nowadays, you don't necessarily have to. They can be made out of any hard material. 
be it metal or wood or plastic or rubber or crystal, as we recently saw mm-hmm. with Lizzo playing a 200-year-old crystal flute. Yes, indeed. Um, as, yeah, as long as it is a hard substance that can be shaped and maintain its shape and you can blow through, you can make a woodwind instrument out of it. There are three classifications, like sub-classifications within the woodwind family. There's single reed, which is like a clarinet or a saxophone. They have a hard mouthpiece that you attach one reed to. It's a usually a piece of cane that's been shaved very thin. And the reed is what creates the vibration that causes the sound that we hear. So for a woodwind instrument, it will also use air like a brass instrument, but it's something on the instrument itself that creates the vibration. The player's body isn't the thing creating the vibration. So you have a single reed for like clarinets and saxophones, and then you press keys down and it covers holes and it makes the length different and whatever. We have double reed woodwinds, which the most common are the oboe and the bassoon. Oboe is higher, bassoon is lower because the oboe is smaller and the bassoon is bigger. Those are double reeds and they don't have a mouthpiece. They simply have two small reeds kind of lashed together and you put your lips around those two reeds and as you blow between them, they flap against each other and that creates the vibration. You have to control the tone with your lips which is why if you have a beginning oboe player around, it's the worst possible sound you could ever experience. <laughs> but as you get better at it, you have so much control over the tone, the oboe and bassoon can get can get a depth of tone variation that other instruments don't necessarily get because you are in direct contact with the vibrating reeds and you can really control it and like a, a good oboe player is like, oh, amazing, like unbelievable. So those are double reeds. I'll give a little bit of trivia about the, the reed instruments. So the clarinet comes from actually kind of a combination of a few different instruments. And so it has three different distinct ranges known as the Chalamot range, which kind of comes from an old instrument that was called the Chalamot. It also has the clarino range, which is the high range, which also comes from an old instrument. And then the middle range is called the throat tones, and they don't sound quite the same. They don't have the resonance that the other ranges have. But the clarinet, you know, if you hear the terms shalomo or clarino, those are the clarinet. And then the oboe, its predecessor way back like to ancient times from the Middle East is the shawm, S-H-A-W-M. And the shawm is even more obnoxious sounding because with the sham, you actually don't put your lips on the reed. You jam the reeds all the way into your mouth and you just blow. So it has a very nasal piercing forward kind of sound. Mm. We don't really play the sham anymore because it is kind of unpleasant. (laughs) (laughs) But you can still hear it in, in things like, you know, traditional Turkish bands or things like that. So those are two of the subclassifications of woodwind, single reed and double reed. We also have edge blown, like the flute. And depending on the design of it, like a recorder, I mentioned, is a type of flute. And so the thing that the air moves across is called the fipple. Anything that has a fipple is also a woodwind instrument, not because it uses wood, but because the thing on the instrument itself is creating the vibrations, right? The player just blows, and the thing on the instrument itself creates the vibrations. Now, a transverse flute... You could kind of say it has a fipple, but it's really just the edge of the tone hole that you're blowing across. So as you blow your airstream across the edge, 
part of the air goes in and part of the air just goes off into the universe. And so the like into the uh, universe. That, that split of the air as opposed to the air the... that goes in, which is no longer in the universe. <laughs> No, it's in the tube, which creates sound, which yeah. we then, please, please don't, don't take this away from me. This is how I explain it to beginners when they're like, I don't know, I'm out of breath. I'm like, yeah, because half of your air is going off into literally everything in the world. It's mm-hmm. just gone. Yeah. Okay. It's okay. You're doing fine. You're doing great. Anyway, so those are flutes. Also, I mean, if you consider, if you think about a pipe organ, that's also how a pipe organ functions. Every pipe on the pipe organ has a fipple. And when you press a button or a key, it blows air through that pipe, and that creates the tone. Other organs use reeds, which are the same thing. You know, harmonica is just a box with reeds in it, and as you blow across, the reeds vibrate. So any instrument that uses air that you blow into and something in the instrument creates the vibration, that is a woodwind instrument. Uh, Next, strings. This is a lot more straightforward. If it uses vibrating strings to create the sound, then it's a string instrument. Uh, Often the body of a string instrument is made out of wood, but obviously you can be made out of metal or plastic, especially if you have an electronic hybrid instrument like an electric guitar or something like that. You don't need the body of the instrument to amplify the resonance or anything like that. But traditional string instruments, body made of wood, and vibrating strings create the sound. They can be plucked or strummed or bowed. And so the pitch is determined by three different parameters, the length of the string, the mass or weight of the string, and the tension of the string. If you think about your typical string instruments, the parameter that is taken away is the length, right? If you think of a guitar, all six strings are the same length. So that's not going to affect their pitch. What does affect their pitch is their thickness, right? You have your really thin high E string down to your thick low E string, And the tension, right? And that's how you tune it. The tension is the tuning. Whether you make it tighter or looser will affect the pitch. Uh, Same thing with violins. Of course, those are bowed instruments, so they have a curved bridge, which allows a bow to move across one string without hitting the other strings. Whereas a guitar or any strummed instrument is going to have a flat bridge, so you can pluck through all the strings together. Typically, strings are now made out of metal and usually overwound metal to get uh, more thickness or more weight. Though a lot of, especially guitar strings nowadays, if you're going for a softer tone, can be made out of nylon. And historically, they were made out of catgut or sheep intestines. And the bows, uh, you know, like the stick part can be made from wood or carbon fiber or whatever. And then the part that touches a string is horsehair. And pretty much always has been, probably pretty much always will be. And so I've mentioned some string instruments, you know, anything with a plucked or bowed string counts as a string instrument, right? Some world instruments like the Rebek from the Middle East or the Bazook from the Middle East or the Shamisen from Japan or the Kubo, right? Those are all string instruments. Moving on, percussion. The percussion family is the largest family of instruments, which if you think about it for a little bit, makes a lot of sense because just anything you hit to create a musical sound counts as a percussion instrument, right? So it's easily the oldest instrument family because once primitive humans figured out that we could hit a log and it sounds cool, and so we hit it again a few times, right? That's that's a percussion instrument. They can be made from any material. Sound is made by hitting, scraping, or shaking the instrument. And they can be broken down into basically two subclassifications, either pitched or non-pitched. Pitched Percussion are things like the xylophone or marimba or vibraphone or any, you know, or or like in an Indonesian gamelan, the slentham, 
or any differently sized set of bars that you hit and they create a particular pitch. They create one resonant frequency that is identifiable to the human ear. And then uh, also timpani are included there, you know, kettle drums. You can include them because you tune them and they resonate at a certain pitch. Uh, on the other hand, non-pitched percussion are the things that just create a percussive sound, like pretty much any other drum or cymbals, right? They resonate with too many different frequencies happening at the same time for our ears to be able to perceive one fundamental pitch. So like if you crash a cymbal, there are tons of different wavelengths going on as that cymbal vibrates, mm. which is why we don't hear it. You can't like hum a cymbal pitch, right? It's just it's just a sound. And that's why it's non-pitched. There are so many percussion instruments. I'm not going to name any in particular because, like I said, it's the largest instrument family. Every culture in the world has some kind of characteristic percussion instrument. And they have a name for it. And it does, you know, provides a particular purpose. So those are the four main orchestral families, right? In, in Western music and European and classical, like, tradition music, those are the, the big four, the kind of standards. We have two more that basically cover the rest of things. One is the keyboard family. And pretty much all of the keyboard family instruments are hybrids. And the reason they're hybrids is because they include elements or mechanics from other families, but we don't really put them into that family because they're not operated the same way. So I mentioned the pipe organ. We call that a keyboard instrument because you play it using a keyboard, right? The player isn't the one blowing into the instrument, so it's not really the same as a woodwind instrument, even though the vibrations of air are created in kind of the same way. It's still a keyboard instrument because it's played using a keyboard rather than the player blowing, right? And mm -hmm. has that, yeah. that keyboard set up with black and white keys with, you know, natural and flat or sharp up above it. The piano... You could call it a string instrument because vibrating strings are the things creating the sound. You could kind of call it a percussion instrument because it has hammers inside that hit the strings to create the sound. And so, like, the decision is like, well, which one is it? Well, how about we just say neither and we just call it a keyboard instrument because the player sits at a keyboard and it's the same setup as any other keyboard instrument. And this also includes harpsichord, celesta, virginal, clavichord synthesizer, you know, anything that has that same setup of black and white keys is, you know, what it's supposed to be, is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it is part of the keyboard family. And, you know, speaking of hybrid instruments, it's really any instrument that includes multiple uh, elements. And so the other family that we talk about is the electronics family. It is obviously the newest family, and it can look like or be anything, as long as it uses electricity to communicate with a speaker which produces sound. So the oldest electronic instrument, the first one, was the theremin, which trivia people love. We know all about the theremin, right? Used for uh, the original Doctor Who theme song in a lot of sci-fi kind of settings. It gets the kind of sound. Uh, we're gonna, um, all going to need to hear that one more time, Kyle. Uh, Great, yeah, thank so you. So that's a ther theremin. Uh, it's named after the inventor, Leon Theremin, who is a Russian physicist, I guess. He invented a device that was meant to measure electrical currents through different types of gases. And what he ended up inventing was a musical instrument. <laughs> um, 
Great. And so the way the theremin works is it has two antenna coming off of it. One of them is vertical and one of them is horizontal. And they give off like these really weak electromagnetic fields. And when you disturb the field, it has a certain effect on the sound that is produced. So for the vertical antenna, when you move closer to it, it will produce a higher pitch. And when you move farther away from it, it will produce a lower pitch. And the horizontal antenna, the closer you get to it, the quieter the sound. And the farther away, the louder the sound. So you can control, I mean, that's really the only two parameters that you need for any musical instrument. It's like, what pitch am I creating and how loud am I creating it? Yeah. And then you can adjust all of those parameters to create whatever music you want to create. It doesn't do like multiphonics or, or like create its own harmonies or anything like that unless you get some additional electronics. But that's what it does. And from there on, electrical or electronic instruments began to be developed. The synthesizer particularly Robert Moog, Bob Moog is the name to remember with the synthesizer. Also, Herb Deutsch was the guy who like co-invented it with him, but Moog is the big name in synthesizers, still is the Moog brand you can still get. You can find a small synthesizer called the Mini Moog, which I just love. Uh, and then after that, you know, we get the guitar and we get all these weird instruments, the laser harp and whatever. There's a lot of cool electronic instruments that are still being invented. But there we go. Those are the six families. Brass, woodwind, nice. string, percussion, keyboard, electronics. Awesome. Okay. Are you ready for a quiz? Of course I'm ready for a quiz. Okay. I will say that none of these questions are about musical instruments. Okay. But there is a theme that you might be able to pick up on. Okay. All right. Question one. Brass is an alloy of what two metals? Atomic numbers 29 and 30 both of which are common in U.S. coinage. Um, oh, Drat. I always get this mixed up, but you said common in U.S. coinage, and so uh, I'm going to go with copper and nickel. You were half correct. Darn it. Copper is one of them. Zinc is the other. Zinc, yep. Zinc is uh, atomic number 30, and copper is 29. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm going to retcon this and say for five points each, name them. So okay. you get five points. That that seems fair. I actually meant to do that, and I just forgot to put it in the question. So Cool. You got five points. Nice. Yay. You got copper. Good job. All right, question two. Which 1908 children's book by Kenneth Graham details the story of Mole, Ratty, and Badger as they try to help a neighbor with a motor car? Um, it's The Wind in the Willows. It is The Wind in the Willows. And Willow just happens to be a type of wood. Mm-hmm. All right, you're up to 15 points. Nice. I don't have anything to add about that. I just, you know, it's The Wind in the Willows. Yeah. I didn't include Mr. Toad because that's more of a giveaway. Yeah. Um, I never read The Wind in the Willows, which is weird because I've read like the vast majority of (laughs) of children's classics. Yeah. I think I read it when I was a kid. Like it's been a long time. And Mm -hmm. apparently A.A. Milne made a play about like based on it. Yeah. Which I knew A.A. Milne was associated with it, but in my brain he just wrote it. So I was like, I guess that's. I don't know. 
Anyway, you are at 15 points. Nice job. Uh, Question three. Use your brain, particularly your D-brain, and tell me what theory of quantum gravity, which replaces the point-like particles of particle physics with one-dimensional objects. Tell me the theory of quantum gravity. Okay. Uh, That is string theory. Are you sure it's string theory? Uh, yes. It is string theory, yes. It is string theory. Man, I had the hardest time. I was like, I'm going to ask a question about string theory. And then I read more stuff about string theory. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to ask a question about string theory. Because, <laughs> I mean, I know it's complicated. And I'm not so arrogant as to believe that I can just, like, read one Wikipedia article and be like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. But I thought I'd be able to, like, piece something together to make a question that's not just... Can you tell me string theory? I am not capable of doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So kudos to everyone who understands string theory. I'm not sure anyone. Maybe Brian Green understands string theory. I think if I were writing a question about string theory, it would be to produce the name of the theorist most associated with it. I even, while well, I thought about that, and then I was, as I was reading it, I was like, well, there are a bunch of different types of string. There's M theory. Oh, no. Yeah. And there are different people associated with different parts oh, of it. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, man, it was hard. So anyway, yep. string theory. You got it. You know more about it than I do now. I, I don't know that. <laughs> You're at 25 points. Question four. Though it sounds like part of a percussion instrument, the tympanic membrane is actually located where? Oh, that's in your eardrum. That is in my eardrum. That is correct. In fact, it is my eardrum and yours as well. Yes, the tympanic membrane. Right. Yes, it is your eardrum. It is in your ear. It is the eardrum. Yes. Yeah. 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 Nice. Question five. In German-speaking countries, they use quirts. In France and Belgium, azerty. What do we typically use in the United States and other Anglophone countries? I don't know this one. I feel like I see the theme, which is that we've got brass, woodwind, string, percussion. So I guess I would expect this to be like an electric themed question. Uh, I feel like there's a connection I'm not quite making. Wait, France and Belgium, uh, Azerty? Can you spell it for me? Uh, yeah, sure, I can I can spell it. A-Z-E-R-T-Y. A-E-R-T-Y. And how is the German one spelled? Q-W-E-R-T-Z. 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 It almost looks like keyboard layouts, which doesn't fit with the theme, as I understand it. Oh, oh, no, 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 it does. It is keyboard layouts. We're talking, are we talking, okay, uh, I'm going to say QWERTY. Excellently done. Ah, it is QWERTY. That was, <laughs> that was grueling. Oof. When you were like, so I think it's got to be electronics. I was like, well, I guess it is technically. I forgot. Now, but also yeah. you just totally skipped one. Yep. No, I skipped one. <laughs> I skipped a category. Nice. Huh. Good job. Way to work that one out. Yes, it is QWERTY. I came across that little tidbit. Like, huh. Who knew? I guess it makes sense that different keyboard layouts would make sense for other languages that use different letters more frequently or less frequently. Yeah. 
Uh, all right, you are at 45 points. And my category for the final, I just have as rest in peace. Huh. Um, I'll wager 40 points. Okay. For 85 points, if you are correct. What alliterative retail chain closed the last of its physical stores in 2009? It still operates a dot-com store, but that might make it difficult for their service to be state-of-the-art. Hmm. Alliterative retail chain closed its last store in... You had a year there, right? 2009. Which feels really late, but... Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so I think we've been working through instrument categories. So I think now we're on electric, electronic, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Radio Shack comes to mind, but that's not alliterative. Best Buy comes to mind... But I feel like I've been in a Best Buy later than 2009. I'm running through like the the letters of the alphabet trying to come up with something say, better you could, than you Best Buy. You could go buy. through the alphabet because yeah. Oh, it might be Circuit City. I'm gonna guess Circuit City. And you got there. Mmm. Well done. Thank you. Yes. Uh, yes. Circuit City, where service is state-of-the-art. You never saw their commercials? Uh, that vaguely rings a bell. That slogan did not stick with me. Oh, man, it is seared into my brain, and the, like, the red plug coming out of the sky, and, like, psh, like, apparently I saw those commercials a lot as a kid, because it is vivid. Mm-hmm. Nice! Congratulations! You Thank did it! Thank you! I did it! Five <laughs> points. Yeah. You, yeah, you, I mean, you worked out some... You worked out some pretty tough ones there. There were some really great, gettable, but challenging clues in this quiz. This was fun. Thank you. Yeah, and a great deep dive as well. Thanks. Yeah, so thank you. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. That's right. And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.